So friends, today we begin a month-long sermon series entitled, Misquoted, Things Jesus Didn't Say. As I mentioned in my newsletter article this past week, sadly there are occasions when the grace that saves us gets lost or turned around as we carry it out into the world. So each Sunday in May, we are exploring some of the sayings that are either misattributed to Jesus or held up as gospel by the larger culture and even occasionally by us. This morning's thing Jesus did not say is hate the sin, love the sinner. And our text is one of the most familiar stories about Jesus. If you follow along in your Bible, you may see this story is bracketed, meaning it doesn't show up in this spot in every ancient copy of John's gospel. It is instead what Dr. Francis Taylor Gench calls a homeless story because it has been placed over time and has been placed in other parts of John's gospel and occasionally in Luke's. Dr. Gench and others agree that this story, homeless as it may be, is true to the Jesus the early church knew and followed. The earliest church shared this story long before it was written down because it reveals something important about Jesus and about the community that claims him as Savior and Lord. As you may remember, in John's gospel, Jesus spends a fair amount of time in the temple in Jerusalem teaching and rattling the religious leaders. At this point in the narrative, Jesus has changed water into wine, fed thousands on a hillside, healed many, and held a conversation in broad daylight with a Samaritan woman. He has also had a late-night visit with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus seemingly comes to Jesus with genuine curiosity. He recognizes or says that he recognizes that Jesus is a teacher who comes from God. And he comes to Jesus wondering aloud about what it means to be born again or from above. In the wake of Jesus' teaching, preaching, healing, and feeding, we hear that the crowd in the temple is divided over what to make of him and what to do with him. So our text picks up there. I'll begin to read from John chapter 7, verse 45. Let us listen for the word of God together. Then the temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why did you not arrest him? The police answered, Never has anyone spoken like this. Then the Pharisees replied, Surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Has any one of the authorities or of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, asked, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? They replied, Surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search, and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. Then each of them went home 
while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're never told her name. She's known throughout the centuries as the woman caught in adultery, identified by her worst moment, at least in headings added later by Bible publishers. Yet there's so much more to this story than the salacious details we're tempted to fill in from our own imaginations. Here's what we know. Tensions are running high around this rabbi from Galilee. Jesus has captured the attention of crowds and religious leaders who are quickly developing their own opinions about who he is and what he's up to. Some of the leaders who view Jesus as a threat are eager to entrap him so that they have an excuse to get him out of the way. And an unnamed woman is paraded before him so that he can weigh in on her fate perhaps sealing his own. We're not told what it means that she was caught in the act, nor are we told who exactly she was caught with or where he might be at this moment. It all seems so sordid, so ugly. It sounds almost like an episode of Jerry Springer or Gossip Girl or The Guiding Light. And Jesus does not flinch. Instead, he crouches down and writes in the dirt. We don't know what Jesus writes. Dr. Ginch mentions that during a Bible study on this text, one participant joked that Jesus writes, It takes two. <laughs> Scholars and others have speculated for centuries about what exactly Jesus inscribes. I'm not sure it matters because the power is in his posture. He does not stand with the accusers against the woman who seem to care less about her and more about how they can use her transgression as a weapon against this troublesome rabbi from Galilee of all places. He does not wag his finger at them or at her. He does not stand with arms folded, defensively rocked back on his heels. No, he crouches down and scribbles something on the ground taking the wind out of their sails and the bluster out of the confrontation. 
They push him to respond with a yes or no answer, and instead he makes them wait while he shifts his posture. Words matter. Posture does too. A few years ago, it was recommended that women, and perhaps men too, entering a contentious meeting would benefit from pausing for a few deep breaths and striking the Wonder Woman pose. You may remember this? All right, so that's feet hip distance apart, fists on hips, chin up. The stance apparently sends a signal to our brains and our central nervous system or simply our psyches that we are capable and worthy of being listened to whether or not I've got an invisible jet outside. And I confess, yes, when my nerves have started to get the best of me, I've tried it. Posture matters. We walk differently when we step onto a football field than we do when we walk into a nursery. And as I watched King Charles's coronation yesterday, I was struck by the different times people knelt before one another as a sign of service or deference. There were bows and curtsies, of course. Heads were bowed in prayer and before the cross, and five-year-old Prince Louis yawned and squirmed a bit. But when I picture this story, I imagine the woman with her head bowed in shame. I imagine the leaders puffed up with their chins set and their shoulders raised. And then there is Jesus. He's already seated, the traditional posture for a teacher. He refuses to stand with the agitated leaders, and he also refuses to cower. He assumes a different posture. And he refuses to settle for something as simplistic as hate the sin, love the sinner. He does not argue that the woman has not sinned. We can safely assume that she has, in fact, broken the law in some way. And as my friend and colleague Joe Clifford reminds me, Jesus tells them to go ahead and stone her. He says, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Go ahead. Throw stones. If you have no reason to have stones thrown at you. As we often remind one another, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All means all. It's not a matter of dividing ourselves up into sinners and non-sinners. It does not work that way. And as difficult as it may be to believe, this is good news. In his stooping, in his writing, in his adamant refusal to pick sides, Jesus disarms all of them and all of us. The woman is no longer isolated as the only one who falls short. The crowd and the leaders are confronted with their own falling short. And for a brief moment, brief moment, judgmentalism is off the table. No one throws a single stone. Church historian Roberta Bondi views judgmentalism as one of the most destructive threats to the life and witness of the Christian community. She says judgmentalism destroys community, it destroys those who do the judging, and even more seriously, it often destroys and certainly excludes from community the one who is judged. She says on a small scale, judgmentalism destroys marriages, families, and churches. On a wider scale, it provides the major fuel of racism, sexism, neglect of the poor, and national self-righteousness. Judgmentalism, for this reason, is 
as a breach of love is as serious as any other sin we might commit against one another. And yet, when we are confronted with our own sinfulness, there is hope for healing on a personal level and as a community as we recognize that we are sinners too. And that sin is woven into every aspect of our beings. We cannot set aside our sins like taking off an old coat. We need help. We all need help. And such a recognition is humbling. And in our humility, we might just be able to offer a healing presence in the larger world. You do not need me to tell you that the world around us is unraveling at breathtaking speed. Hatred and vengeance come at us in waves like a never-ending high tide on a storm-tossed beach. We are so quick to resort to hateful rhetoric and revenge. We are so quick to pick up not simply pebbles but boulders. And we are so astonishingly and heartbreakingly quick to hurl them. And sadly, many of those who are quick to throw stones worship the same God I do. And follow the same Lord. And it is easy and seductive to fall in line until someone blessedly steps in or stoops down and doodles in the dirt. That Bible study participant who suggested it takes two is not wrong. Ancient Jewish law called for both the woman and the man to be stoned. But it actually winds up taking more than two. Because more than two have sinned here. There is ample sinfulness to go around. There still is today. And as I said earlier, that is good news, or it can be if we're able to hear it. Dr. Bondi writes, cultivating the virtue of seeing ourselves as sinners is a major source of healing. Healing the wounds of judgmentalism in our heart. Knowing that I am a sinner, she writes, means taking seriously the knowledge that we all do or are at least capable of terrible things. The monastic teachers were quite certain that it is not possible to love other people unless we understand at a very deep level that our human failings in the area of love put us all in the same boat. And Dr. Gensch builds on Dr. Bondi's point. To know ourselves as sinners and thereby to heal our judgmental hearts would appear to be foundational to our ability to extend ourselves in love and compassion to others and perhaps also to ourselves. We share a common human struggle with sin and are indeed all in the same boat, equally reliant on God's grace. Equally reliant on God's grace. Equally all. If we are saved, it is by grace alone. We have all sinned and we are all saved by grace. Jesus does not say to love the sinner and hate the sin. Nor does he say live and let live. 
This is not a question of anything goes. There is not one among us who could throw the stone when invited. All have sinned. All fall short. And yet Jesus doesn't stop with that. He encourages the woman to let go of her past failings and invites her into a new beginning. He invites the others to begin again, too. Now, not everyone will listen. Some will insist on clutching those stones. Some will fixate on their next chance to hurl those stones at another center, in another place, at another time. I can't make them drop their stones. I can, however, opt to live differently myself. I can pause. I can take a breath and stoop down for a moment or at least pay closer attention to the one who stoops and scribbles first. And then I might be able to drop the stone I've clutched so tightly and by the grace of God, I just may be able to open my ears and my heart to hear his grace-filled invitation to start again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.